Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. In this episode, we are sharing the audio from Consumer Voices webinar earlier this month that launched our Dignity for All Staffing Standards Now campaign. Through this campaign, Consumer Voice is advocating for a minimum staffing standard in nursing homes. In this episode, you will hear about the importance of adequate staffing for residents' safety and health from Sam Brooks at Consumer Voice and Toby Edelman at the Center for Medicare Advocacy. You will also hear from Shelley Jackson, a CNA in Pennsylvania, and Marguerite Garajas, a resident in Ohio, as they share what it's like to live and work in a facility without adequate staffing. To view the PowerPoint slides mentioned in this episode and to learn more about the campaign, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality. If you enjoy pursuing quality long-term care, consider making a donation on our website, theconsumervoice.org. Every contribution helps us to continue the production of this podcast. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to today's program. I'm Lori Smetanka, Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. We're happy to have you with us today. Next slide, please, Libby. For those of you who may not be as familiar with us, the Consumer Voice is the leading national voice representing consumers and issues related to long-term care. Our work is centered around advocating for policies that support quality and are responsive to consumers' needs, empowering and educating consumers, training and supporting others who advocate for long-term care consumers, and promoting and supporting the critical role of the direct care workers and best practices in the delivery of quality care. So this month marks the one-year anniversary of the Biden administration's announcement that it would be working to implement historic reforms to improve safety and quality of care in nursing homes. A key component of those reforms is to create a minimum staffing standard, which we have long known is critically needed. Over the last year, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, has embarked on a study to determine the minimum staffing level of direct nursing care that residents need and has promised to propose a standard this spring. We've been hearing a lot from the nursing home industry about why it can't meet minimum standards, but getting lost in the discussion is the impact of short staffing on residents and direct care staff and why we must ensure that enough staff are present to provide care. So today, Consumer Voice is launching a new campaign, Dignity for All, Staffing Standards Now, to highlight the importance of implementing a staffing standard in nursing homes and to raise the voices of residents and direct care staff who ultimately are the ones who suffer the negative effects of living and working in a nursing home without adequate staff. Over the next several weeks, we will host a series of events where we will hear from residents, direct care staff, and policy experts talking about the importance of implementing standards and how we can achieve them. You'll see on the slide in front of you um, a link to our webpage that'll give more information about the campaign where you'll be able to register for events and find action steps on our campaign webpage. And again, if you go to our website, you can get more information about that. So next slide, please. So today, um, our panelists are Toby Edelman, Senior Policy Attorney for the Center for Medicare Advocacy, Shelley Robinson, a Certified Nursing Assistant at a nursing home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, an Executive Board Member with the Service Employees International Union Healthcare Pennsylvania, Marguerite Groches, a nursing home resident in Ohio, and Sam Brooks, Director of Public Policy at the Consumer Voice. We're looking forward to their presentations today, and I will turn it over to Toby to get us started. Toby? Thank you, Lori. Next slide, please. There is no dispute that nurse staffing levels are critical to quality of care for residents. Decades of research find that higher staffing levels matter. Residents have better health outcomes and facilities have fewer deficiencies. I am unaware of any single study ever finding that residents have better quality of care or quality of life if there are fewer nurses providing them with care. Unfortunately, the current federal requirements do not lead to the high levels of nursing care that residents need and deserve. The 1987 Nursing Home Reform Law and the regulations have very limited nurse staffing requirements. The requirements are first, eight consecutive hours per day of a registered nurse, 
24 hours per day of licensed nurses, that means RNs or LPNs, and otherwise just, quote, sufficient nursing staff to meet residents' needs. Next slide, please. The White House issued a fact sheet the day before President Biden's State of the Union address in February 2022, which set out a comprehensive 21-point nursing home reform agenda. Central to that agenda was a commitment to enact a nurse staffing ratio that would be enforceable. The first of 21 points in the agenda is ensuring, quote, every nursing home provides a sufficient number of staff who are adequately trained to provide high quality of care. I wanted to read just a few sentences from the White House fact sheet about the importance of staffing. Quote, the adequacy of nursing home staffing is the measure most closely linked to the quality of care residents receive. CMS intends to promote to propose minimum standards for staffing, uh, staffing adequacy that nursing homes must meet. CMS will conduct a new research study to determine the level and type of staffing needed to ensure safe and quality care and will issue proposed rules within one year. The president reiterated his commitment to nursing home reform just this past month uh, in his State of the Union address again. Next slide, please. When CMS announced the new staffing study in August 2022, it said, quote, evidence has shown that adequate staffing is closely linked to the quality of care residents receive, close quote. There are many components to this staffing study reviewing the research literature, conducting site visits to 75 facilities in 15 states and more. At a call yesterday, Jean Moody Williams of CMS said the site visits have been completed, but CMS is still analyzing the data. She said CMS will issue a final report that will address recommendations, barriers, unintended consequences, and cost implications. She also promised that there will be plenty of time for public comment. Next slide, please. The staffing initiative is a two-part process. In part one, CMS is determining what residents' actual nursing needs are. In part two, CMS will propose nurse staffing ratios in notice and comment rulemaking. Next slide, please. The actual need for care is not based on where people live or who pays for their care. For example, only registered nurses are legally able to do comprehensive assessments of residents. Residents get sick any time of the day. Having registered nurses available only eight hours a day is not sufficient. And many people over the years have called for registered nurses 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Paraprofessional nursing staff are absolutely essential too. A resident who needs help in bathing needs help, regardless of who pays for her care. A resident who cannot independently transfer from her bed to her wheelchair needs assistance from one to two certified nurse aides in rural and urban areas. Residents' actual care needs are not based on geography, payer source, local unemployment rates, or any other factor that's not based on actual resident need. Next slide, please. In part two, CMS, will publish a notice of proposed rulemaking, which will set out the staffing ratios and the rationale. All members of the public are invited to submit written comments explaining why they agree or disagree with the proposal and addressing relevant issues to staffing. So it will be our chance when we see the notice of proposed rulemaking to talk about temporary nurse aides, which I will mention in a moment, to talk about how paying workers a living wage could pay for itself. And there's a link here in the slide to a report by Leading Age, the Trade Association of Not-for-Profit Facilities that said just that. If, if workers were paid a living wage, it would improve care and it would pay for itself. No additional reimbursement would be needed. We could also talk about the adequacy of existing reimbursement and related parties. And Sam is going to discuss this a little bit later in the webinar. Next slide, please. Although President Biden made nurse staffing a central part of his reform agenda, concerns about nurse staffing levels have been raised for decades, literally for decades. In 2001, APT Associates completed a four-volume study, Appropriateness of Minimum Nurse Staffing Ratios in Nursing Homes. 
and they called for 4.1 hours per resident per day to include 0.75 hours per resident per day of registered nurse coverage, 0.55 per resident per day for LPN, and 2.8 hours per resident per day of CNA care. These levels APT found were necessary to prevent avoidable harm and to meet just some of the requirements of the 1987 reform law. APT reported at the time in 2001 that 95% of facilities could not meet those staffing levels. What's even more shocking to me is that even today, nursing homes claim that still 95% of facilities can't meet these nurse staffing levels. 95% cannot provide, do not provide 4.1 hours of nursing care per resident per day. We know residents today are much more frail and have greater health needs than they did, than they had when APT issued its study almost 25 years ago. Next slide, please. CMS has been quite open and transparent in gathering information on what residents need. In April 2022, CMS issued a request for information. This was the first opportunity for public comment, and thousands of people commented. Many of the people attending today's webinar submitted extensive comments describing both personal experiences, which are really very important for CMS to hear, and research literature. Next slide, please. One of the most comprehensive comment letters was submitted by Professor Charlene Harrington, the primary researcher in the country on nursing home staffing. She submitted comments for herself and 79 additional geriatric nursing experts. The letter included an appendix with 110 studies from 1977 to 2022. Some studies were about registered nurses where the evidence is strongest about the correlation to high quality care. Next slide, please. But studies also looked at particular care areas, sometimes one or two areas, sometimes multiple areas. They, they looked at incontinence, urinary tract infections, pain, pressure ulcers, weight loss, dehydration, antipsychotics, restraints, infections, falls, rehospitalizations, emergency department use, adverse outcomes, and mortality rates. All of these studies, regardless of the specific care areas they focused on, found the same thing. More nurse staffing means better care for residents. Next slide, please. This was also true during the COVID pandemic. A study in Connecticut found, looking at Connecticut nursing facilities, found that 20 more minutes of registered nurse time per resident per day was correlated with 20% fewer cases and 22% fewer deaths from COVID. Similarly, the New York Attorney General Letitia James issued a report in 2021, made the same finding. More staff meant fewer resident cases and deaths. In fact, her study found that most resident deaths in New York State occurred in facilities that had one or two stars in the staffing rating, one or two out of five, one and two mean below average or much below average. That's where most of the deaths were concentrated, where there were fewer nurses. Next slide, please. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine issued a report in 2022 called the National Imperative to Improve Nursing Home Quality. This report, like others, again, highlighted the importance of nursing. And I wanted to quote two sentences to you from that report. Decades of evidence support the association between in inadequate nurse staffing and poor quality of care in nursing homes, particularly for RNs. And most nursing homes do not have sufficient nursing staff to meet the needs of residents and are not adjusting staffing to take resident acuity into account. Next slide, please. The National Academies report identifies the need to adjust staffing, even minimum staffing levels upward to reflect resident acuity and residents increased personal care needs. And on this slide, I have a link to a 2020 report by Professor Harrington suggesting a five-step guide to adjust staffing ratios above minimums to reflect resident acuity and care needs. Next slide, please. As important as staffing ratios and acuity adjustments are, we know that more is needed to ensure that residents receive high-quality care. Staff certainly need adequate and sufficient training. These are difficult and complicated jobs, and training is important. 
Staff need a living wage and they need health and other benefits. We know at the beginning of the pandemic, many nurse aides went to work when they were sick because they did not get health benefits. And if they didn't work, they wouldn't get paid even the very inadequate wages they were receiving. Staff needs sufficient supplies and working equipment and they need to know how to use the working equipment. A lot of people were not really trained in personal protective equipment and did not know how to use it and were, were not given sufficient equipment. Staff need career ladders and opportunities to advance. And of course, they, needed, they need to be treated respectfully. And frequently that doesn't happen. We read reports where a facility is cited with a deficiency and the plan of correction is we fired the aid. It's like that takes care of the problem. That doesn't take care of the problem. It's probably not the aid's fault when there are not enough staff to provide care. Next slide, please. As Lori said, nursing homes have been very vocal in opposing a staffing the staffing ratio that the administration has promised us. And they've made two major arguments. First, there's no one to hire. Nursing homes did in fact lose a lot of staff during the pandemic, but staff have not returned to nursing homes to the extent they have in other healthcare settings. Staffing levels are still extremely low. And second, their argument is any staffing mandate would require additional reimbursement. The industry keeps coming up with a larger and larger number for how much this will cost. As of January, the American Healthcare Association said if a 4.1 staffing ratio, this 25-year-old number, was proposed, it would cost an additional $11.3 billion a year. Now, to put this figure into context, in 2020, nursing homes and continuing care retirement communities got almost $200 billion in reimbursement. So there's a lot of money going into nursing homes. They can spend more on staff. Next slide, please. Staffing ratio may seem inevitable at this point, and I think the nursing home industry knows that, but it's taking additional actions that I believe jeopardize the quality of the nursing, so nursing staff. Uh, the nursing home industry supports legislation in Congress to continue the temporary nurse aid program after the public health emergency ends on May 11th. The temporary nurse aid training program was developed at the beginning of the public health emergency when CMS in March 2020 waived nurse aid training requirements. Specifically, they waived the requirement that nurse aides be trained at least 75 hours and pass their state's competency evaluation test. American Healthcare Association created an eight-hour online training program, which many states accepted as sufficient during the pandemic. There are now more than 300,000 temporary nurse aides, and we're not sure how much they're really able to do, how much they can assist CNAs in doing the work. Many are trying to become CNAs without receiving full training. The industry wants this program extended. Second, the industry also supports legislation that removes restrictions on when facilities can use, can train their own aides, and the industry supports changes to immigration law bring in additional people. We don't know what the proposed rules will say, of course, but we're anticipating some recommendations that the nursing home industry is likely to make. Here are some of them. First, the industry may seek waiver authority so that facilities can be excused from meeting the minimum nurse staffing ratio. This is very troublesome when the ratio reflects the minimum number of hours that all residents absolutely need to get decent care. Second, there may be proposals to count non-nursing staff in the, in the nurse staffing ratio. States are coming up with new categories of workers like personal care attendants that don't have sufficient training to be CNAs. We don't believe that people who are insufficiently trained should be counted in the nursing staff. Third, if staffing ratios are not specific for each of the three categories of nurses, RNs, LPNs, and CNAs, facilities may attempt to substitute LPNs for, for RNs. And as the research documents, RNs are critical to quality care. Next slide, please. As I end my part of today's webinar, I want to reiterate three things. First, insufficient staffing is not a new problem. Second, insufficient staffing was not caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And third, nursing homes have not had enough nursing staff for decades. Those points are really indisputable. 
But now, for the first time, an administration is tackling the issue of staffing head-on and asking the right questions. What do residents actually need? And how do we make sure that residents get what they need? Answering these questions honestly is essential and can lead to meaningful staffing ratios and of course, improve care for residents. I urge everyone today to send comments when CMS publishes a proposed rule later this year. Please continue to make your voice heard. Thank you. Thank you, Toby, for that excellent presentation. And as Toby said, we are expecting proposed rules to come out sometime this spring and Consumer Voice will certainly be keeping you updated on when they come out and provide guidance and information to you to help facilitate your participation in providing comments. It's critically important that we all register um, comments on those rules when they come out. Um, next, I'd like to um, call up Shelley Robinson, who is a certified nursing assistant at a nursing home in Pennsylvania. Shelley, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Hello, welcome everyone. Glad to have you with us. Can, tell us how long you've been working in a nursing home, Shelley. Since 1994. 1994. That's That's been a long time. What got you interested in working in this field? Um, I started out taking care of my grandmother when she got sick. Mm -hmm. I think that's how a lot of us got interested in working in this area. We were all very close to our grandparents. Um, and I know certainly that was the case for me as well. Um, so talk to us about, a little bit about what it's like um, as you're working in a, in a nursing home. Um, when uh, I'm sure you've been on shifts where you've had enough staff to provide care for residents and when you haven't. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, what it's like when you're providing care to residents in a nursing home when you're feeling short-staffed. Okay, well, I'll tell you about yesterday. I wasn't feeling short-staffed. I was short-staffed. We were short-staffed. Mm -hmm. um, it was one CNA per floor. Well, we have four floors in my facility. Mm-hmm. The floor that I was on, I had 22 residents to serve breakfast and lunch to, to make sure that they got all of their needs met, face washed, teeth brushed, um, hair combed, changed and dried and everything that they needed. And there wasn't enough hours in the day for me to do everything that everyone needed. So Not you were the only certified The only CNA was myself and residents. Uh-huh. For 22 residents. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, definitely it affects the care you're able to provide for residents, right? So can you give examples of, of what that means um, in terms of making decisions about providing care? It, you have to decide what things you, you will provide for them that are the most necessary. Like, might mean you can't brush their teeth, but you made sure they were their body was washed. You just, it, you have to cut corners. You can't do everything. You can't provide 100% care for these people that they deserve and that they pay for. Mm -hmm. And that even doesn't get to things related to just having a, a chat with people or, or recognizing if someone may need some a little bit extra bed, assistance. Like you mm -hmm. would like, um, you can't get them up at, in their wheelchairs for them to go into the dining room to have meals or to an activity because it's just you. Mm-hmm. So that means that residents are spending a longer time staying in bed. Yes. Uh, maybe instead of socializing with others, they're having to stay in their rooms instead of participating in activities. And they may not even be getting dressed during the day. Exactly. Mm -hmm. How does that make you feel when you have to make those decisions? Horrible. Horrible. You know, because that makes them more susceptible to bed sores and depression you know, and then the, a lot of them just want to give up. They don't want to, you know, like if this is how they have to live, they don't want to live anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a man one day tell me to take him back to his cell. Wow. Because that's how he felt. He was living and in a cell. That's exactly how he felt. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it affects the morale, not just of the residents, but oh, also definitely. of the staff who are, are feeling this way. Mm -hmm. caregivers. This is what we do. We care for these people. We take care of them. I think I explained it earlier and during the chat that we are their family and they are our family. Like we see them more than their own family see them. We're there for birthdays, holidays, 
you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, we're there with them more than their own family. So they become family. Right. So when you're not, when you're moving so quickly from one person to another, um, are you able to really even pick up on like changes in condition or changes in mood or, you know, even kind of figure out some of the things that might be going on with them? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are things that, that slip through the cracks because you have to, you know, because you have to provide care to this one. And, and it, everyone's personality is different than the next. Some mm-hmm. people are more demanding than others. You know, some people don't require a lot. Some require every, you know, a whole lot. It just depends. And so how has it also affected the staff with, so for example, if you need, if you have residents who need two people to assist them to the bathroom, for example, or to assist them into the chair or to help them get changed. And, and you don't have other, other help who can come and do that. So how, how does that affect you as a staff person? And what does that mean for you as well as for the resident? And most times we attempt to do it ourselves. That's dangerous, isn't it? Very dangerous, very dangerous. Mm-hmm putting yourself at risk um, of harm as well as the resident at risk of harm. Mm-hmm. Well, and most times the residents insist. I'm here with my, one of my coworkers and she's listening. So okay. if you see me look to the side, she's telling me what to say also because she's listening. Okay. So I don't want you to all to think that I'm crazy. She's listening and she works with me. So she, you know, she knows, she knows the day to day. She's worked alone on 11 to seven, taking care of on the one floor, I think we have like 30 something residents. So no, none of us are immune to this. Like we are. And think about fire hazards. Exactly. She said fire hazards. Like we, I mean, if, if while we're short staffed, if this building catches on, catches on fire, we are in big trouble because there's not an, you know, we won't be able to save everyone. Mm-hmm. And so are you being told why there aren't enough staff or why there aren't more staff that are, are being brought um, in to work in the, in the building? I repeat what you said. I couldn't hear you. Are you being told um, why, why you can't have more staff to come and help? Oh, because they don't want to pay. <laughs> they don't want to pay us. And they don't want to pay them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just basically what it boils down to. And that because we are in-house staff, we just pretty much, they want us to suck it up, like suck it up and deal with it. And every day, the, the, I've been doing this for a long time and every day, the duties of a CNA become more Mm -hmm. like uh, it went from, you know, providing care to now we move beds. Now we move furniture. Now we're setting up cables, you know. Um, so, uh, in terms of, um, you had mentioned a story when we were, were talking a little bit earlier, um, Shelly, that, you know, that about, um, some of the staff, um, using food stamps to buy snacks for the residents. Can you yes. tell us that story again so that everyone listening can hear? Okay. Well, we were, we were getting ready to go out on strike. My facility was, and, um, the administrator pulled us in and, we were just telling her like, you know, you know, these girls are using their food stamps to buy diabetic snacks and, you know, syrup and the basic needs that these residents have. And she was like, well, why are they using their food stamps? And I'm, and I said to her, the bigger question is, why do they still qualify for food stamps when they work a 40 hour week? You know, exactly. how do they, how could they still, how do they still qualify? How does their income allow them to still be on government assistance? Mm-hmm. Which was the bigger question, not why they're doing this they're doing this because they love their residents and they want them to have what they need the question is why do they still qualify for food stamps in order to use their food stamps to provide them with what they need so you have staff that are you know coming to work every day they're not making a living wage um they're working short staffed putting themselves and their residents at risk and knowing that they're not able to provide the care that they would like to provide to the residents exactly and so do you find that because of those reasons, there's a lot of turnover among staff that people are coming and going? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, we'll get, see, I'm not working. Yeah, the, the, you'll have, they'll come in and, and um, if it's not an assignment that they like, or they're not on a, in a, a, on a floor that they like, they'll leave. 
you know, they don't they don't worry about their licenses and they, yeah, they don't they never want to work alone. Like we just we pretty much know what needs to be done and we have taken care of it. Most of the people in my facility are long term. We've been there for years. Mm-hmm. Some three decades, some two, some one. But we are like the dedicated and you know, we are we're not gonna turn our backs on these residents for just about anything like we like I said we've been through we've been through the trenches like we've been yeah. through some stuff yeah well we really give you a lot of credit for all the work that you do and thank you for your dedication to the residents and for speaking up on behalf of not only them but on, on term in terms of yourself and your colleagues um, really to give a real picture of what's happening in too many places around the country right yeah. now um, they, and they- and if you had to uh, tell the folks listening, you know, um, if you had to ask them to do one thing to help make things better in uh, in nursing homes, what would you say to them? I would ask them to help us push to increase staffing ratios, wages for CNAs and nurses, because we're all in this together. Um, just stay, stay due diligent on keeping an eye on these facilities and these nursing home owners and that they're buying up all these homes and these people aren't getting the care that they're paying for. Like everyone needs to keep an eye on that because it's not right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Shelly. We appreciate you being here with us today and for telling part of your story and to your colleague also who's off camera. Thanks to her as well. And uh, appreciate you being with us today. Yep. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. Now I'm going to turn it over to Cindy Napolitan, who is a, or I'm sorry, not Cindy, Marguerite um, Grouches, who is with us today. And Marguerite is a resident in Ohio and um, is going to share some of her experience with us. So Marguerite, can I ask you to put your camera on? There you are. Okay. Hi. Welcome, Hi. Marguerite. Glad to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, my name is Marguerite Proches, as you can see on the screen. Um, I was formerly uh, a high school teacher, and now I paint as a pastime because I don't work anymore. I'm a six-year resident of a long-term care facility in a rural county in Southeast Ohio. Um, I have a chronic health condition that impacts my mobility and has caused me to need assistance in my daily care. Um, I'm a so-called two-assist resident, uh, meaning that when I, for instance, get transferred out of my bed and into my power chair, we will need two people to do that. I'm involved in advocacy work at various levels. I'm the president of the resident council at my nursing home, and I got involved there pretty much uh, from the beginning. Uh, I noticed that the people in my nursing home were not very good at expressing what they liked and didn't like. And I felt that possibly I could, I could be a mouthpiece for them. Now, today we're talking about short staffing and it clearly impacts our care. Um, short staffing is a daily challenge. As I said, I'm a two assist person and for transfers in and out of bed or into the shower, we need to use a higher lift. And the state of Ohio requires two people to operate a lift like that. Now, if there's just one CNA on the floor, you will just have to wait and see and hope that someone else can come and help. Um, and that is not always very time, timely. There's a lot of waiting involved here. Now, we were just talking about staffing ratios and um, I talked about this with my administrator who said, the staffing is just fine in our building. I'm afraid I do not agree with that. Um, on paper, the staff patient ratio is one to 10. Um, I happen to live in a rehab um, unit and our resident numbers shift all the time. And when there are 10 people on my unit, we will get one aid. But when there are 19, we also get one. And of course, that is clearly not enough. And people do not get the level of care that they require. 
Um, we have a number of uh, regular people in my unit that work. And, but on a day like today, there were two people working my units that don't normally work here, which means that you have to explain what you need, how you would like to have things done, and how you would like to be taken care of. I'm capable of doing that. But what about my neighbor across the hall? She's nonverbal. How can she express this to changing staff? Or people who simply cannot express their needs. What about their preferences? Now, consistency of CNAs and nurses is really important. You build trust with the people who take care of you. Regular aides know your routine and how you like to get things done. And it means you don't have to explain again and again. Um, let's see. And having fixed staff is not just good for residents. It's also good for the staff itself because you build relationships and things will be much more pleasant. Now, the kind of care that I need in a day, um, I will give a little breakdown of that. From the time I wake up, the very first thing I need is a cup of coffee. I will need personal care, I need to be changed, but most mornings I get coffee and breakfast and I'll stay in bed and read paper, do some crosswords and some other things. This is not my choice. I adapted my schedule due to short staffing. And when I do want to get up for showering and things like that, that is where, where my care really lies. I, um, I require a lot of um, help with personal care and especially um, transport. Now, everything has to come together for, for um, having enough people to take care of me. Um, everybody's busy. And I have to say that the CNAs in my unit work extremely hard. Um, how staffing levels um, impact my day-to-day -day life, I would like to talk a little bit about. Um, and let's just start last night. At about 7.30, I was done being in my chair. I was, I was ready to get into my bed. But it took an hour and a half for that to happen. Now, of course, that's not how it's supposed to be. It got painful to sit in my chair and waiting is not my preferred pastime. Nights in nursing homes, or at least in mine, are very different from, from the way the day is staffed. Um, we often have um, a skeleton staff at night, one CNA, and then we share a nurse with another unit. Um, when I moved into a, in this, into a nursing home, I actually had quite a romantic view of night shift. And um, I, I thought staff would have time to talk and to maybe study all these nice things that you see in films. Well, that's not how it goes. Um, no one sleeps at the same time at night, and it is always busy at night. Okay. Um, another example that I would like to share with you is about um, not having the right kind of nurse available. Uh, about a year ago, I needed steroids, and I was given a three-day infusion uh, course of steroids. But on day three, I was told that there was no RN in the building to administer my next or my last dose. So it would just have to wait until the next day. Now it's a three course, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a three, three day course for a reason, of course. And um, so I, I told the person who told me that, nah, no, you're, you, that is just not how it's gonna happen you will need to find someone to administer those drugs as they are prescribed. And they did. Um, and when the RN came to administer the steroids, um, she single-handedly lifted the level of care in the building to, to a higher level. 
Now on paper, there is always an RN connected during the day at least. Um, that, that will not mean that it's necessarily somebody who gives direct care. It could also be someone in administration who happens to be an RN. And um, so you can be creative or they are creative, I have to say. Okay. Now, one way my nursing home thought to, to deal with short staffing was very interesting. One night, an aide came up to me and she said, would you like to wear underwear at night? And I said, you're kidding me, right? What kind of question is that? So the facility had decided there were too many bed sores and it would be better if people did not wear underwear at night rather than increasing bed checks and making sure that people are clean and dry. If you don't wear underwear, how, how is that better? You'll end up wet from your knees to your shoulders and then they'll have to change the whole bed. So I don't know. I asked the, the same aide if this question was asked to everybody. And she said, yes. And I was curious to know how many people said, oh yeah, just, just don't give me underwear at night, it's okay. Well, it was no one. No one wanted that. And I, I must say, I never heard about um, no underwear at night again. That was the end of it. Um, now, like I said, I'm able to advocate for myself. Um, I talk to my administration about things that I see and hear. And I feel like since I have the ability to express myself, I might as well use it. There are still many things that don't go well for me. So I wonder how this is for others who cannot advocate for themselves. One example of, um, of someone not really being able to or knowing how to advocate for herself was happened during um, a resident council meeting a while ago. She, a resident told us that she was routinely woken up at 3 a.m. to get her morning medication. So I asked her if she liked being woken up at 3. And she says she didn't like it, but she did not want to be a problem. Um, so she, she just had that happen to her, even though it later on when we talked about this and it was looked into, she could get her medication at probably 5.30, which sounds a lot better than three. Um, let me see. Now, you really have to advocate for yourself. Otherwise scheduled things are not happening as this medication or even um, scheduled showers and things like that. Okay, let me see. Now, apart from direct care, it's also very important that your building is staffed with you know, people in different, in different areas in case, um, let's say you need to have people in laundry. So there are linens. If you don't have linens, it means no showers. You need enough people in the kitchen to cook the food. And in my facility, we have not had a meal in the dining room since right before the pandemic. And we are always told, oh, we don't have staff to man the dining room. Now, adequate staffing standards means not just the minimum care is being delivered. There are things we would want to have like conversations maybe, and things besides being fed and cleaned and clothed. And at present, it's just not getting done due to lack of staff. And finally, we have a lot of short-term people in my unit um, who not necessarily um, fit into the, the routine that, um, that my facility prefers. So these are people who just came out of the hospital, they have a health crisis, um, and they use their coal lights a lot because they need help. 
And um, the response is not always forthcoming. Staff are, are not able to, to go 15 times in an hour to the same person, for instance. Now, one thing I would think would help greatly is if there was one central person who could answer call lines. Because right now, I dropped my pen on the floor. Could you pick that up for me? Or I think I had a heart attack. Receives the same attention. So with adequate staffing levels, the quality of care and health outcomes for residents would certainly improve. And it would mean that the other quality of care would be much better. Thank you. Marguerite, thank you so much for such a powerful statement and for sharing examples and your story. We cannot thank you enough for participating today and for your words of wisdom to all of us and, um, and your advice to all of us to keep pushing for adequate staffing levels. So thank you so much. I'd like to turn it over to Sam Brooks, Director of Public Policy at Consumer Voice. Sam? Hi, everyone. Um, thank you very much. And I just want to say, echo Lori's um, comments, both to um, Marguerite and um, Shelley. Um, and just to remind folks that they are um, not alone. Um, we hear from residents and we hear from workers all the time. And it's just really powerful. Um, to hear it. Um, and too often, the discussion about staffing standards is about the well-being of facilities and their owners. And it's not about the well-being of residents and staff. So I'm just really grateful to be here and honored to be able to share the um, stage, for lack of a better term, with both of you. Um, so I wanted to shift gears a little and talk a little more about um, one of the other Biden administration priorities and a priority for us. And I think that one that goes hand in hand with um, ensuring that residents and um, staff um, uh, are um, getting the care they need and getting paid um, uh, what they should. So, excuse me, staff should be paid what they should. So we're gonna talk a little bit about transparency and accountability in, in nursing home finances. Um, uh, next slide, please. Uh, so uh, one of the big themes for us over, well, for decades, but particularly past several years, and also um, one of the, the real big uh, areas for the, uh, the Biden administration and his reforms were increasing accountability and transparency for how nursing homes use their, the money that we give them, taxpayer dollars, the money that's supposed to go to Marguerite's care and supposed to go to Shelley's um, wages um, and uh, where that money goes. Um, nursing homes receive billions of dollars in federal funding through Medicare and Medicaid. In 2019, at least 80 billion. There's no conditions on how they spend their money. Nursing homes hide profits through a variety of very uh, uh, questionable accounting techniques. And one talking about uh, related parties, which we're gonna talk about in about a minute. Majority of nursing homes are for profit. More than half are part of chains and corporations. And there's an increasing number of private equity firms. And if you're in this space, you know that the private equity, these firms that are just about investment, um, about money, making money. They're not about care. You know that um, over the past 10 to 20 years, they have made a more significant presence in uh, the nursing home area. But I say they are a symptom of the problem. Private equity is here because they can make money and they can exploit residents and they can exploit workers to make profits. But they came here because the, the, the situation was right um, for, for this type of behavior. Um, and ultimately what happens is uh, cost, care costs are slashed to maximize profits, not just for private equity, but for most corporations. Next slide, please. Uh, so 
as Lori indicated, we're going to be holding a series of uh, webinars over the next several um, weeks and um, giving voice to residents and to workers. But we're also going to be giving voice to a report that we will be issuing on um, uh, what's re called related parties. Um, this doc, the report will show how annually billions of taxpayer dollars are siphoned off through related party transactions with no accountability of all how the money is used. And what is a related party? Many of you will know what one is, some of you won't, but a related party is an entity, it's a company or a business organization that does business with a nursing home. Say they provide laundry services. However, that entity is owned by the same people who own the nursing home. So that's a related party. The party provides a service to the nursing home, but in some way, um, the nursing homeowners control it or have an ownership interest in it. Um, one chain, and we'll go over that this would be in the report, in three years, siphoned $1.25 billion, and that's Medicare and Medicaid dollars through related parties. This is one chain. Um, roughly 350 million of that were insurance payments to itself. And the fact is, is CMS does little to nothing to scrutinize where that money goes. It just, it shows up on reports, it shows up on annual reports that nursing homes file, but CMS does not hold facilities accountable for how um, they are spending that money. Our report will rely on uh, cost report data, annual data submitted by nursing homes um, annually, and it, it, it aggregates this data, pulls it together, and shows just how much money is being pushed through these, these related parties. And in our experience of reviewing these cost reports, it is our belief that CMS does nothing to review them. These cost reports often are contain glaring errors, you know, uh, uh, decimal points in the wrong place saying that a nursing home spent billions on staff, um, uh, clear errors, clear omissions of data, clear omissions of important information that have been sitting there for years that have not been corrected, which leads us to believe that CMS is not looking at these cost reports. Next slide. So let me just explain to you what a related party is. And um, this is kind of, uh, and again, this is just a preview to a, to a webinar that we'll be holding um, in, in a couple months um, uh, with Ernie Tosh, who has been working on this report with us. So this is the most common related party. I own a corporation, Brooks Health and Wellness Corporation. I also own a nursing home down there at the body at the bottom. It's called Lazy River Nursing Home. So what I do is I create a, a, another corporation called Acme Health Corporation. And Acme Health Corporation is owned completely by me. And what I do is I sell um, Lazy River Nursing Home to health, Acme Health Corporation. So now Acme Health Corporation on paper owns Lazy River Nursing Home. So that's a related party. Acme Health Corporation I completely own, um, but yet, um, it, sh it shows that Lazy River Nursing Home is owned by Acme Health Corporation. And what I begin to do is I begin to charge um, Lazy River Nursing Home through Acme uh, Health Corporation exorbitant lease fees. I charge over market lease fees and um, I start raking it in. Next slide, please. And what this does, it allows owners to charge exorbitant rents that turn into profits for the owners. This money is sucked off into the coffers of owners, but it is disguised as rent or lease, lease fees. Um, same thing really. Um, and allows, and also what this allows to do is allows owners to show these rents as expenses. So it shows up on the cost reports as these huge expenses, which reduces the profits. It often makes nursing homes seem that they're unprofitable. You look at the cost report and it says they're in the red. But if you look at what their expenses are, it's because they're paying themselves sometimes tens of millions of dollars in rent fees and other and other fees. Next slide, please. So let, let me, I just want to show you one, uh, one uh, illustration. Brea's Healthcare is a chain in, in uh, California. Um, notoriously, 
provides a poor care. And this information on this chart is taken directly from cost report data submitted by Brias Healthcare. And these are all, this is the cost report information for all of their nursing homes. If you look on each year, they've reported um, the, that they cost them $11.8 million, um, that they had to pay $11.8 million in lease payments. But if you look at what they actually paid to their related parties and lease payments, it was 152 million. That means that they paid in excess $140 million to related parties. That's a that's an that's an ex excess payment of almost 1,200%. So on these cost reports, which we've been reviewing, this data is right there. And it's clear from information like this that CMS just isn't looking at it. How in the world can you explain a 1,200% overpayment, uh, an amount of money that is just unbelievably uh, huge? And once that money goes into the related party, it's gone. No one knows where it goes. This is just one illustration of how um, related parties are used to siphon off money. Next, next slide, please. And this is repeated for other functions. I create, so now as a nursing homeowner, I create a staffing aging agency. I create insurance company. I create food services. I create management services. And what I do is I create all these businesses and I start charging my nursing home for them. And the important thing is, is that CMS does not scrutinize these costs. So our report will show that oftentimes the we, we oh, related parties are overpaid by 50, 75, 100%. So all the, all the, the it's all right there in the cost reports. And um, it's very important um, that, um, next slide, please. I want, so it's very important that CMS must start auditing these reports. I mean, it's clear that they're not looking at them now since we see these just exorbitant overpayments that are occurring. CMS needs to create some sort of automated system that actually rejects a cost report if it, it has zero or it, does, it omits necessary data. It needs to question, um, detect questionable information and flag for further review. It needs to be audited. And most importantly, we strongly believe that CMS needs to use something what we call a consolidated cost to cost reports. And what this would do is require financial disclosure from all companies related to the nursing companies, uh, nursing homes. So that means all related parties would need to disclose just how they're using taxpayer dollars. They would have to disclose holding companies, trusts. There's a myriad number of businesses that gravitate around nursing homes and suck off profits. Um, and um, at the end of the day, what it's doing is not just stealing um, from us as taxpayers, it's stealing from residents, it's stealing from Marguerite, and it's also stealing from workers, it's stealing from Shelley and the, the tens of thousands of other workers that this money is meant for. So in a couple of weeks, on, I believe it's April 9th, we'll be holding, next slide please, we'll be holding uh, a webinar that um, goes over all, goes over our report, lays it out in detail on how this is done. and. Remember, 70% of nursing homes use related parties. This has been known, known about for, for a couple decades now. And the money is there. It's being siphoned off away from care. And the importance of a minimum staffing standard will require that money to be used for staffing and not to buy yachts for owners and not to buy uh, luxury mansions and uh, the, the Hollywood Hills for, for nursing homeowners. So stay tuned for that. That webinar will be um, in April, and we look forward to releasing that report in, in the next few weeks. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sam. And I'd like to give a big thank you to Toby and again to Shelley and Marguerite um, for their presentations today. Um, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. Um, so I, I don't think we'll be getting to questions right now, but we'll, we will go through them and try to get information out related to um, the questions that have been raised. Um, uh, please stay tuned for more information about 
um, what's happening over the next several weeks with the campaign. We have several more events that are planned over the next several weeks. We'll have um, different activities that can happen on social media. Um, we'll be asking you to write letters when the uh, proposed rules come out. We will be asking you to respond and we'll give assistance um, related to that. But this is the time we need to all be stepping up and advocating um, for staffing standards, for accountability, for transparency, these for enforcement of standards. And, and now is the time for us to really be pushing um, for all of these actions to be taking place. So um, stay tuned. We look forward to working with you all to get us over the edge here and get these standards put into place to get better accountability and transparency. Thank you all for all of the advocacy that you are doing right now. Um, we look forward to continuing our work with you. Um, and have a good rest of the day. We'll be in touch soon. Um, and please come back and join us again for the next event in a couple weeks. So thanks. And thanks to all of you who joined us today for the program. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. This podcast is a program of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information and resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.